Making a recipe that calls for butter? Make it better with European butter from France. With a minimum of 82% butter fat, it's no wonder French butter is the number one choice for chefs the world over. Whether you're whipping up an omelet, sauteing vegetables, or spreading it on toast, the rich, cultured flavor of butter from France always elevates. Be sure to look for Made in France on the label, and for recipes, tips, and tricks, go to tasteeurope.com. So there's like a book called Leaked Recipes, basically taking things from all these different emails that were leaked, like from WikiLeaks and all sorts, the Cheney emails. Like I love things that just kind of pick a lens and present, but then find all these really funny ways that humanity creeps in. Listening to the Taste Podcast. I'm senior editor Anna Hiesel here with editor in chief Matt Rodbard. Today in the show, I'm catching up with Paige Lapari, the chef and owner of Arcastratus, her Greenpoint Brooklyn cafe and cookbook store that has become a favorite of the Taste staff. The Taste office used to be in the neighborhood, and most of the staff would sneak away for an afternoon cookie or arancine and browse the shelves of new and vintage cookbooks. Oh my gosh, I used to go, I would say, I'd had my run in the afternoon, like lunchtime for the arancini or sandwich and a Sicilian soda. I'd also um, hit the like 3.30, 4 p.m. cookie run at Recostratus. I'd usually buy uh, a copy of Gastronomica where they, they actually had a stack of vintage Gastronomica, so I'd buy one of those. And really in this interview, it's just we talk, about her store, which is an absolute gem and the way that she curates it. We also talk about some of the expansions she's made over the past fall, how she survived the pandemic. We also talk about the book that Paige may or may not be working on, the cookbook, a cookbook store owner writing her own cookbook. Can you imagine that? I can't wait to read it. Here's Matt with Paige. And make sure to visit tastecooking.com for our latest stories and recipes and to sign up for our newsletters, which drop on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Paige Lapari, welcome to the Taste Podcast. <gasps> Thank you, Matt. I'm so excited. <laughs> Long time Arancini fan, first time meeting you in person. I know. It's so wonderful to, to have you here. I feel the same. First off, I'm such a fan of your bookstore. We Our office at Taste was around the corner. I used to go there and just buy books. I used to buy Arancini and your sandwiches. Yeah. Let's talk about your expansion. You went from a, a smaller space to a larger space. Yes. And so explain what you've done there because it's so exciting. Thank you. I So, you know, we've always had one space around the corner on Huron Street. And kind of started to, you know, we always did multiple things in this little space and kind of put everything on wheels and just kind of shifted around like we were putting on a show, like every time we needed to do something different. And I loved that. But I started to feel like if we had just had a little more space, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so many possibilities would open up. Um, and so I, a few years ago, started to think about a space maybe on a main drag and more square footage and like, you know, going in more of that direction. And then February 2020, I almost signed a lease. And then wow. my gut just was like, 
this isn't right. And the lease was right around the corner from on Manhattan Avenue. And so for early February 2020, I was like, this isn't this isn't right. And I got out of the lease. Um, Amazing. And <laughs> then March 2020 happened and we were, you know, all in the midst of coronavirus. And so I had done all this research about expansion and about, you know, um, sort of the had thought a lot about the direction that I wanted to expand. One of the things was grocery and prepared foods and like, you know, going more in this direction. And so I was really like like it was I had been thinking about what then suddenly became the need of everybody in this neighborhood that I could then serve. And so we pivoted and started the one stop shop pickup. And that, you know, really took off. And so I kind of gained more confidence that this was something that also needed to kind of like come into the picture. Um, Like, you know, because we were doing a lot of events and those were suddenly just gone. But I knew one day they would come back. And then my neighbor, Goose, Gustavo, who owns Headrush Barbershop, this is a space opened up because he was moving. He like took over his mom's laundromat that was on the corner. Mm. Now we've 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 moved the the books over to the new space. And then the old space, we also really did a revamp of. And now that is much more of a grocery, Italian grocery and prepared foods and larger menu. And then so we've got more space to do like pop up dinners and stuff. I love that. Let's get to what you're cooking, because one thing, the draw of Arcastratus has always been the menu there, Um, not just the (laughs) books and and the and the grocery and the retail, but. Uh, what are you doing right now in the cafe? And yeah. and and listeners, everyone needs to go tr- check out the arancini. I mean, it it's like one of my top five dishes <laughs> in New York. That's really really nice. It's true. So, what are you making these days? I'm I've finally hired people to help me cook, which is absolutely a dream. Yeah. Um, and so we have things like on the old menu. The rainbow cookies every day now, <laughs> which is like wow. huge for us. My goodness, every single day. Yeah, because wow. it's a process to make those, and I was mm-hmm. the only one that was making them at the, for a long time. So we've got rainbows cookie. We've got the whole cookie menu um, every day, um, and then we've got the sandwich menu that people like came to know and and enjoy and come back for the sandwiches. Uh, and we have arancine mm-hmm. that change all the time. And then I have other things that I'm going to be sort of rolling out and introducing. Within the next month, we have a few more people coming on board for our cooking uh, staff. And I really am excited about sort of the direction, which is just bringing in more of the things that I would make for the Sicilian dinners that I used to do every week for the first few years. And more of those Middle Eastern influences that are in Sicilian cooking in a way that they aren't in other parts of Italy. So you've got like, you know, your saffron and Mm -hmm. you've got your golden raisins and your fennel and like all these different like sweet and salty and sour flavors working together. And so I'm going to bring in a lot more uh, things like, you know, couscous and yeah. and garlic chicken and lamb and and, you know, the couscous festival is is in San Vito Lo Capo in Sicily. And that's for all of the world. But a lot of people don't realize that couscous is very much a part of Sicilian cuisine. One hundred percent. Yeah. And I'm also going to have a whole section of the menu just called eggplant. And it's going to have eggplant parm and um, eggplant caponata and roasted eggplant with amoyo. And then also this thing called, well, I guess you would call it spiadine, but. 
but yeah. but I grew up calling it spatini. So we're going to call it spatini. <laughs> and it's just like a rolled fried eggplant with like pignoli nuts and tomato and and cheese and parsley and breadcrumbs and onions. And, and can we buy tickets online to these dinners or yeah. you just show up? Well, so right now, this fall, I'm doing tons of events, but it doesn't look like it online because I'm fulfilling yeah. and making good on my Aldemani's parties mm-hmm. uh, you, you sort of campaign, which was like dinners from the future. Yeah. So I'm cooking starting in November, like a chicken parm dinner, eggplant parm, Sicilian dinners. So right now we are going to kind of we're taking stock of everyone and seeing how many tickets we have left at the end of the day. And then we might be able to release more sort of like the week before. Yeah. Check out the website. We'll link to it in the show notes. And I think that's important just to always like subscribe to the newsletter. It's just a fun read. And <laughs> it, there's always we'll get to the books very soon. But it, there's always some words of wisdom. There's always something fun happening at Orchestratus. <laughs> and of course, these dinners and these events. There's so many cool events happening. I wanted to have you in because this summer we had an interview and, and it, I ran on taste and we went over some of the books that you were looking forward to this fall. Uh, you mentioned black food. You mentioned this book called From Gujarat with Love, 100 Easy Indian Vegetarian Recipes by Pina, Veena Patel. So yeah. I wanted to hear first about your your interest in Gujarati cuisine because I, I felt yeah. when we had that that build, that interview, you were all about Gujarati cuisine. And I love <laughs> what you said. So let's first talk about that. Then we'll get into some other books. Yeah, it's I'm really curious about it and I'm just very interested in learning so much more. It feels really special and like it's it's basically a part of of India that is not very touristy but absolutely beautiful and like has many like famous Indian figures come from yeah. there. They are I think the largest producer of salt like in that region and so like salt is in their cuisine in a way that is extremely unique and like all the different types of salt that come from that region like are part of that cuisine but it's a very it's the the region is very um influenced by jainism mm-hmm. which is a veget it's a religion that is you know does not want to harm anything um doesn't mm-hmm. want to harm animals so it's a vegetarian cuisine um that is coming out of jainism so you know I feel like it's sort of treating all these vegetables as completely sacred in a, and also treating them with proper cooks and, mm-hmm. and bringing out their flavors in a way that's not approaching it from the point of view of, oh, you know, we are meat eaters, but we should be eating vegetables. It's like, no, we just we believe in this sort of sacred plant based cuisine. It's, it's very holistic. <laughs> it's not um, it's not a an arch or a, an orthodoxy right. uh, that you're going to put into a tweet. Right. It's totally it's very deep. Yeah. And it's it's, cult- it's the culture, right? It's clear that you sell books that you that you read, that you review, that you that you really love. Obviously, you're not reading every book that you sell, but it's rare to me and and I think Celia Sack shares this over in San Francisco Omnivore, Matt Sartwell over at Kitchen Arts and Letters and and some of the great indies in America, the guys that are now serving, they yes. actually carry books that they care about and that yeah. they want they really have a passion for the the, the words on the page, and not just uh, the, the the cover image and the uh, celebrity author. Right. So I think it's yeah. it's a sense uh, when you go to Archistratus is that you're going to discover new new titles from the big houses and also the indies. That's my long way of saying what 
should we be looking for? Because I, as an editor, am looking towards you to just you know instruct and teach. What like what what's cool that's being released this fall? I think you have to have. I mean, and the thing that always attracted me to cookbooks was voice and point of view. And that's why the store is called Archistratus after a person, because I think that that's how we feel connect, how we all connect is when you are just like going deep in your experience and your, and your way of looking and your point of view. um, It actually becomes like a very universal moment. Uh, And so I love, I love books that, that come from, they can only come from who who wrote it. And that doesn't mean it has to be like super sentimental, emotional, poignant. It can be just a concept. So there's like mm-hmm. a book called Leaked Recipes that um, was is just like about uh, how it basically taking things from all these different emails that were leaked and like from WikiLeaks and all sorts, the Cheney emails, like all these and just like looking at it with that lens like I love things that just kind of pick a lens and present but then find all these really funny ways that humanity creeps into all of these <laughs> so that's exchanges recipes. and recipes that's called leaked recipes and that's out this fall great yes. what's another title that you're really looking forward to I mean I just I've been going through the new Carla book Carla Lally music then, yeah yeah and totally. I'm so impressed with her I'm just impressed with how she really taps into like her own she cook you can tell she just like cooks all the freaking time <laughs> like yeah. she's just at home and she Completely. loves to cook she's with her family and it's so authentic and and there are and like when you were sort of had asked if there was some you know uh gap that needed filling mm-hmm. possibly in in cookbooks um i always go like i'm whenever i'm going through cookbooks i go oh, that really jumps out at me as something that you don't see a lot, which is like in her book, she is really cooking with several types of protein. And I just mused uh, about how much I love vegetables and how excited I am about Gujarati. But it's also really exciting to have a cookbook that like is completely fearless in its approach of like cooking proteins in in a weekday kind of way where you're like, you should not be afraid to like Mm -hmm. take on a lamb ground lamb or a veal shank or like you know it's just very um approachable yeah the democracy in carla's recipe development is 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 there it's clear it's it's a book that i would call moderate in terms of complexity it's not simple dishes Mm -hmm. and simple cooking but she does take very complex ideas and brings it to like the middle ground uh, the middle 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 level and i feel like that's really hard to do yeah uh, and and it's it's an exceptional book. I agree. I wrote about it a few weeks ago. Oh, I love that. Yeah. What else are we looking forward to? <gasps> oh my gosh. I mean, what else? I I love Atlas Obscura. This oh, is cool. like very gifty book. I, I love a gifty book, but not. I usually don't love a gifty book like this. Yeah. Is, but this is something that I think is so much fun. And uh, it's the gastro obscura, gas- right? Yeah, it's gastro obscura, and it's you know after Atlas Obscura, yep. the podcast which I love. Um, mm-hmm. And it's just it's just a pleasure to sit down and discover all these little corners of the food world. I actually love the idea of 
looking around you and just like not having this idea that you need to travel to find, you know, something incredibly mm-hmm. exciting, interesting, weird, you know. So I I really appreciate that kind of book. And it also is very much about profiling the people, again, that yeah. are involved in all, in all of these little strange food corners of the world. So I, I, I love that book and I love those those people that are behind it. So. Yeah, they're really smart. They actually their offices are on the corner as well in Greenpoint. We share they're they, we're in the same building as them. Amazing. Yeah. Uh, a few more. Let's. Yeah, I yeah, feel yeah. like we're on a roll here, I know, and I know our listeners. Going. It's gifting season right now. <laughs> well, I have a really good one. Yeah, which is Jam Bake, and by Camilla Wynn. And we just, I mean, we are. I am coming off of like <laughs> two incredible events with her. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you, this is the perfect book for for people that don't know what to get the baker in their life, because it's not just a book about preserving; it's about how to use preserves within your baking. It is absolutely a amazing book on how to make jam and preserves Mm -hmm. she has a very no-nonsense approach that is like attainable uh for anybody that likes to cook or bake um you know it's she's got so much knowledge and has experience you know has tried all the different methods and has come upon this technique that is very easy um and so and also is just like an incredible teacher like she Mm -hmm. taught a class at the store And there's a real difference when you have someone coming in who you go, oh, that's someone that knows how to communicate. Like I felt that way about like Sami Nostrat's book, like where you're just like, oh, you love to teach and share and like get these ideas across in a way that people can really like remember Mm -hmm. and understand them. And she's the same way. And so like her book reads in her voice, which is great. And her recipes are comforting and classic but also very like creative and fun and hip yeah. so it's just an incredible book it's jam to get bake. the baker yeah jam bake jam bake and let's is there one more that we can mention what and else? also first stop before you get to that last one how do we yeah. buy books at Archistratus? what's the best way to do that the best way is to go to archistrat.us and we have a whole section like you can click on books and it'll go mm-hmm. and list all the different categories or you can just like search for them it's in the great search you box. can really find great treasures on the website i love it we'll link to in the show notes thank you yeah so that's how we do or you can give us a call yeah um and or an email to the store give us one last one (gasps) okay oh my god i gotta i gotta think about okay (laughs) well i mean black food the bryant yeah bryant terry's let's go into that one Uh, we've written about on taste bryant terry's book called black food but what's your point of view on this it's 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 a really a unique and and kind of uh boundary breaking book i feel it's it's brand new in concept and in form yeah well, me and Bryant share an obsession with music, yeah. and <laughs> I love that all of his books really um, take into account the sort of like the flow and like have interludes and have music pairings and like just really, really think about the 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 reader's experience of the book. And it's honestly the it's going through it it just feels so fucking important and incredible and like to have so many black voices in one space and to have i mean it has energy the book has energy it's like when you come upon an ancient temple and you're like what is the energy coming off of this ancient temple it's like that you know so it's uh and has so many different modes of expression either through like you know recipes or essays poetry poetry which i mean for me that's my kind of book like one that really gets at the human comes at food via the human experience mostly through art and less through skill like Uh, that just for me is my that's my 
my favorite Toots thing. Horn. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's Black Feud by Brian Terry. Um, I wanted to ask you, and you referenced this previously, but I asked Matt Sartwell from Kitchen Arts and Letters this question. I've asked the team at Now Serving in Los Angeles this question, and I like to ask this to booksellers. Um, it's just really good information for for us as as authors and writers of food. What are we missing in terms of books? There's, you know, you you talk to customers every day, and they're requesting books. Uh, you are uh, looking at the world of food. You're looking at the world, uh, you know, in front yeah. of you, and you're seeing um, a, a cultures that are covered, cultures that are not covered. So, what are we missing right now? Well, it's actually really nice coming off of Black Food and going into this question because I think I really am attracted to books and series that create community and really bring together the food community. Like there was this series that no is no longer, but it was called Short Stack. Mm-hmm. And it was like little pamphlets and they had, you know, they all have main ingredients and then all these different authors. Strawberry, tomato. Strawberries, tomatoes, corn. eggplant, like, yeah, chocolate. Mm-hmm. And each author was like an expert in that ingredient. And then you had this collection with, you know, sort of curated by the right person, but bringing all these people together that felt just you could you can feel like the the community the love in the community and i i would love to just see more of that like just to see more publishers mm-hmm. like do a series and have experts in the field like wax poetic about whatever they want and ask them what they want to write about and then just have them do it and see what happens. Um, you feel there's a demand for that from customers because, you know, this yeah. is a business. Of course, we need to make sure that books are being sold. And I you yeah. think there's a real demand for that from your customers. Definitely, yeah. because people, I mean, it's like why Substacks are taking off. Like, it's like really these voices are so unique. And so if so you- So great. I was thinking the same thing. I was like, newsletters are like that. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, if you can find ways to have- you know, different different voices that are that are clear and and in a in a way that is a like a form and a content that p- customers can understand what's happening, like mm-hmm. um, and take it in very easily. Then I think that that would be that's having that feeling of community and expertise and passion and excitement around something. That's what I think is lacking a little bit. So at Arcastrada's page, you don't only sell new books you sell used vintage books you sell vintage periodicals i've i've uh, paged through your uh, piles of gastronomica and picked up some oh, really wow. cool and weird uh, issues you have old bon appetit <laughs> gourmet so i want to know just like where do you find this stuff because it's so cool to see like where do you find it oh my gosh i miss it so much but i used to and i will again very soon and we talked about this a little bit yeah go to these different um, book sales around the tri-state area and, you know, churches, libraries, schools, they're always having book sales. This is something that I ha- I went before I started the store for like the first year uh, before I started the store. Every month I would go to these sales and like it would be me and my dad and my mm-hmm. Nona. And like we had a plan because they're really intense and you have to like get Nona a chair. Papa gets a box. <laughs> like I run to the cookbooks. Like it's a whole thing. It's like kind of scary, these book sales. And mm-hmm. and so there's a there's a portion uh, a, that that came uh, that come from those where I just sit on the floor and go picking, 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 picking mm-hmm. through these different books, you know, using my knowledge, using my intuition, just kind of going through. And it's a blast. 
the other thing is that I I sort of at the beginning kind of shut down like we don't sell uh, we don't buy books, but now I'm starting to feel like that mm-hmm. is something that I want to bring in again. Um, cause sometimes people do donate things to me and I kind of pick through and go, okay, this, this mm-hmm. makes sense on the shelf. This doesn't. Um, so I, yeah, I'm cur- I'm sort of interested in starting to develop more of those relationships with people that want to sell books and go to see guys. Sometimes I get lucky and yeah. have a cl- go and can pick through someone's amazing collection. I've done that. That's a, that's a brilliant experience oh my gosh private collections you Um, gotta keep your eyes open too there's there's books everywhere (laughs) what's your grail like what do you what's Uh, something that you have been searching for one that comes to mind oh my god well the first thing that comes to mind is something that i was talking about with one of the um curators at this incredible uh film um house called Mm -hmm. light industry in my neighborhood of Greenpoint. Um, we're going to do fingers crossed a Marguerite de Raw dinner and I'm oh, going to cook it. Cool. And because, um, one of the curators has the Marguerite de Raw cookbook, which is like in French and incredibly rare. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. a Holy grail that comes wow. up. I cannot wait. Like the deal, like this is all contingent upon me being allowed to like handle this, this <laughs> with, book <laughs> with gloves on. Yeah. We ask everyone on the taste podcast, if you could write a cookbook, you, Paige, who sells cookbooks, <laughs> I want to know, without time or budget as a factor, what would that cookbook be? So the first thought that I have is there's two answers. One is I don't want to write a cookbook. That's oneself, right? <laughs> Why? The because you want to stay objective and just well, like. No, just because mm. my passion is like making environments, cooking, selling books, like 20 other things. And it's so funny to me that I don't have this like secret deep desire to write a cookbook. I really don't. Like if I wanted to, I think I probably would have already or I would have like Mm -hmm. become a food writer or Mm -hmm. done all these other things. But the thing I really love to do is like hold space and be in an but create an environment and have this kind of like mysterious thing happen. And that can totally, that then led me, when I was thinking about like why I didn't want to write a cookbook and why I wanted to hold space for this mysterious chemistry that happens between people, mm-hmm. then that was like, oh, well, that should be the cookbook. <laughs> like, like the That's cookbook. That's the second part of the answer. Yeah, the answer, second part right. of the answer is like, okay, so if I had a cookbook, then it would have to sort of be an ex- something experiential that really created, that, that really mm-hmm. got... Um, the sense of place in it and sort of the spontaneity of conversation and the spontaneity of what it feels like to make arancine or like it would have to be able to capture those things. It would absolutely be all the Sicilian food that I love to make. Um, And it would have to also be like sort of the poetry I like to write, which is like made up uh family inherited history that I fill in the the gaps. So you know, good. it would have yeah. to be all these kind of strange things. There would have to be probably like a board game that doesn't make any sense that wow. pulls out in the middle. There'd have to be a CD or like a, a like that goes a CD ROM. Yeah, CD ROM, a floppy disk great. with music on it. <laughs> um yeah, it would have to just be bonkers. I bet. And is there a book about Arancini out there? Or is there like... There a... isn't a book about Arancini. Well, there you go. I know. And it's funny because um, uh, someone once approached me about wanting to co-author an Arancini book with me. And I was like, mm. I, 
I think I'll just author it maybe one day. Yeah, one day. <laughs> That's my hope is that there's maybe a book. But it, I, I think holding space and having this community built around Archistratus and what you're doing is, is being your top priority. It, we all benefit from that. That's so nice. So. Thank you. <laughs> Paige Zapari, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much. I hope this made sense. I hope my words made sense. 150%. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Kathy Irway, you are a cookbook author, a columnist, a journalist, a James Beard Award winner, and you're now on the Taste Podcast for the very first time Yay. as a podcast elite or elite <laughs> podcaster. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's great to have you here. Um, so what is the status of your podcast situation right now? I want to hear, mm-hmm. I know you, you, you run, you've been on or hosted many podcasts in the past. So what are you doing these days? So right now we're working on season three of Self Evident. It's uh, we're actually um, launching it in just a couple of weeks. Um, the first couple of episodes, and then um, so I'm the host, but it's really a collaborative uh, podcast. It's telling Asian American stories. So it's a it's really storytelling sort of format, longer na- narrated, like edited yeah. pieces like, with a lot of journalism behind them. So it's like a lot of work goes into each episode. Yeah, Self Evident has been great. Yeah. Yeah, um, the but, episodes I've caught have been great. Absolutely. Thanks, yeah. thanks so much. Yeah, yeah. But then there's your show, they right? Host. So then I've I've also hosted on the Heritage Radio Network, although I'm taking a break right now. Um, an interview show called Eat Your Words, where I've had authors of food books on for something like eight or nine years. Yeah. I can't remember anymore. <laughs> it, it, <laughs> <laughs> make sure to look back uh, at those episodes, listener, <laughs> because it, Kathy's OG podcast. Uh, podcaster and I, I love those episodes. I, I oh, listen to everyone. So I really do. I mean Amazing. It. I wanted to bring you in to talk about Shelve It, which is mm-hmm. um, a column you've written for Taste for the past couple months. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've, I think, we've run at this point three columns. We're working on our fourth, and and also you ran a successful column called Know Your Chicken, <laughs> um, which I thought was so fun. I loved I, every every month you would write a, a different story about chicken. But let's talk about Shelve It. Okay. What's your goal with this column? So Shelvet is about all these pantry staples that you might take for granted. Um, I think it's really fascinating, each and every one of them. It's like, why do we have a, a canister of pepper that you grind? And, you know, and it's like in every, like, American recipe. But it's like, where did this – how did this get here? And why just pepper, you know, yeah. <laughs> of all the spices in the world <laughs> to end up here? So, um, you know, pepper is not something I have written about actually for this. But each sort of um, piece so far has been a really fun deep dive that's been, like, you know, taking me through a rabbit hole. Mm-hmm. And I don't know how to get out usually. <laughs> So it's a lot of fun and, you know, it's just like everyday ingredients that you can take a closer look at when it comes to home cooking or, you know, for any chef who's just interested in ingredients. And I think the a bit of the subtext, and this is something that Priya Krishna also uh, touched on in her, in her piece in the Times about the ethnic food aisle, is that some of these foods that you've written about, uh, rock sugar, uh, you're writing about sesame oil that's coming up soon, mm-hmm. um, are sometimes – put into the ethnic food aisle. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to get your take because it's been a great topic to kind of unpack Priya's story. You've written about it. How do you think a like these big box stores like Kroger, Walmart, how should they negotiate the idea of the ethnic food aisle? Is the ethnic food aisle just something that should not 
being right. there in, in the first place. I mean, it's such a fascinating topic, the ethnic food aisle in a <laughs> large grocery store. And, you know, it's it's a really tough question to answer. I don't think even in like, you know, prehistory was amazing and she had mm-hmm. so many different voices from food makers, from grocery store executives, I guess. And so there didn't seem to be any consensus really behind, you know, what to do about these products. Should we all, should we just put them in one shelf? And some folks felt that they would be better served by being with other sort of like products and others Mm -hmm. didn't, you know, think that that would be good. And I really think it depends on the place that this supermarket is is in, like what community they are at. I mean, I'm not much of a supermarket shopper because I live in a very urban area because I can go to, you know, a little market here and there. Mm -hmm. Um, But actually now I do have a supermarket that just recently popped up in my neighborhood. And it's I live in a very heavily Caribbean American neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so there is a shelf for like this one brand of Jamaican foods Mm -hmm. uh, that, you know, that people, you know, just may may find that really convenient and it just works. Mm -hmm. So it really depends. So with the ethnic food aisle... I wonder, I agree, like, there is some convenience there. Like, you know where, like, I know where I'm going to find certain Chinese ingredients, like, like what you would identify as, like, Chinese ingredients, like hoisin sauce, for mm-hmm. example. I would, like, find it in the ethnic food aisle if I was in, um, like, Maine wanting to cook a certain mm-hmm. dish and there wasn't an H Mart nearby. So I could see the convenience element, but also the othering of these of these ingredients and like putting them in this like weird package together, putting yeah. Mexican next to um, like something that you'd find in like uh, Turkey uh, and then Aleppo chilies in the same spot. It just seems like it's racist. Well, that part is where it gets kind of not so helpful, right? If you have yeah. like maybe say you have like a Mexican seasoning blend right and it's next to the chinese stuff would it and then there's like this whole spice section that maybe has cayenne pepper and like i don't know onion powder and other stuff and there then that mexican spice blend isn't there like that's not that great you know of an idea so that's where it gets like okay you want to put these international or ethnic foods Actually, international would be better, but you know. I feel that's the <laughs> word I try yeah. to use too. We don't say ethnic food really. Yeah. Well, I that's what the, that's the first one I came up with because like <laughs> ethnic makes no sense. It as no Priya sense. Krishna pointed out yeah. in that piece, it would be make make a lot more sense to me to not have them all grouped together just for the sake of them being non, I guess American, but like then not even like Italian is part of that anyway. For for the sake of them being non sort of Western European foods, that that doesn't seem like a good purpose in its own. Yeah, <laughs> let's pivot to your reporting in uh, in your column uh, and talk about, about chili peppers because it seems and chili powder and chili flakes and de- dehydrated chilies, because it seems to me like there's a this is a really good time right now as we speak to be cooking with chili peppers mm-hmm. um, because there has been a, a greater effort to identify peppers from different regions to keep them fresh. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to hear a little bit about that story and really what's so special about the chili pepper these days. Well, so in that story, I learned a lot too. And I found that, yes, there's so many different types of pepper that you see chefs using, that you see in recipes. There's Aleppo pepper. There's like Sichuan pepper. There's Urfa Bieber yeah. chilies. There's, you know, it can make somebody like you know, their their head explode a little bit yeah. or think that they need to stock up on a lot of things. And what I found that is that a lot of the times it comes down to the processing 
not so much like some sort of varietal. And, you know, over time, folks in different regions have grown chilies so that they slightly differ so that they're like from that region so that you call them Aleppo peppers. But it's also but the thing I think is special about Aleppo peppers is the way it's been processed, which is like, you know, it have that. It has that crispy texture to it. It, it absolutely has right? that textural element to it. Exactly. Absolutely. It's really prized, mm-hmm. that texture. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So it's not really about so much the varietal than the processing. Yeah. And then there's the goju chang. Yeah. Or sorry, goju garo. Goju garo, yeah. Garo, the flakes, <laughs> not the paste. Um, and that has uh, a really great flavor from being sun-dried and... Um, yeah, so it's it's all about the processing. It's a cool story, and we'll link to it. But also, um, on the contrary, on the flip side, when you when you see a recipe just call for cayenne pepper, big air quotes there. Mm-hmm. What, like, what do you think about that? Like, when you're actually because cayenne isn't really saying much. No, um, it's not. So many different types of peppers are cayenne, meaning they're like this long, skinny family of peppers, I would say it's not like one varietal. There's many different varietals of cayenne. I think it means because it's been so established from large spice makers like McCormick as this fine, red, medium, hot chili powder. And so when, so that's like a generally understood ingredient when you call for cayenne. Now, I don't know if that's changing because there's so many different other options, but yeah, I think it's been branded as, as a certain type of processing. And I think more p- folks, more home cooks, our listeners would be interested in cooking with different peppers if they knew there was more out there than just cayenne. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually, it's like on the recipe writers, like it's in their mm. like court to kind yeah. of call for more than just cayenne. Yeah, You know, absolutely. to actually make that effort to research yeah. if you're cooking a general cookbook, like maybe – Think of uh, maybe Gojigaro works there and right. it's even not Korean. Maybe it's some other. Or, or maybe we should write like a fine chili powder or a flaky chili powder, which mm-hmm. could be a Sichuan type of chili yeah. flakes or a Calabrian type. And it's pretty much fine either way. You write about sugar in one of your columns. And I wanted to hear about it. It was a great piece and it, it really took off online. And how there isn't a one size fits all for sugar, uh, though we oftentimes yeah. see that in recipes. What is it? What did you mean by that when you wrote that? Well, line? sugar is really fascinating, but it seems like in recipes, de facto, um, well, doesn't seem it. It is <laughs> sort of pretty well established in American yeah. restaurant recipes that um, sugar is granulated white sugar. Yeah. Um, that's not the norm. That's not the go-to in many other places. Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't that long ago that it was, you know, this very fine ultra-processed um, granulated sugar. Also, I, I think it's really interesting that, you know, the brown sugar we have, light brown and dark brown, these were granulated sugars that had mo- the molas- the natural molasses taken out of them during the granulation process or the refining process and then have a certain amount added back to make that perfect amount of light, light brown or yeah. dark brown. The aesthetic of the brown sugar, right. we all know it. Right. Well, this is all for consistency's sake, right. I think. But many other cultures, they, they use sugars that already have the natural molasses still in them because they didn't go through this really backwards process. Yeah. And they're wonderful and they taste amazing and uh, they're deserving of, I, I guess, use in all kinds of You call them like rock sugar in some there's ways? rock sugar. How do you describe plum sugars? Plum, how do you describe, how do you shop sugar? for these sugars? 
Um, well, a lot of them are specialized in or like well known in certain cuisines. So, right. um, if you cook a lot of Southeast Asian cuisine, you're gonna find you, or you're gonna go to a place that has plenty of types of palm sugars and coconut sugar. So, and you know they're amazing, and I use them in everything now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you could use, and that's the whole beauty of this. Is like you don't just have to use this for Thai food. Um, you can use it. You know, I use demerara sugar because, again, I live in a Caribbean neighborhood, so mm-hmm. I've had turbinado and debonair sh- sugar in the raw. Sugar. You may call it. Yeah. yeah, but it's like from like these uh, Trinidadian brands and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, 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 so, yeah. and I've been using that for my baked goods forever, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm like, this is a lot better. It's yeah. like it tastes good. Yeah, it, you really it has a taste rather than not, right? Exactly, and you you write in the column. Um, in Shelvet about how these products have flavors that we sometimes don't actually observe when we're when we're cooking with these commercial commodity products like the Domino box. Are there other products that you plan? And we haven't really like riffed on like your next like five columns, but are there <laughs> other products you'd like to dive into? Uh, there's so many. Let's see. Well, I'm writing about sesame oil right now. And yes, that, you there's are. There's such a huge range that yes. it's just. It's mind-boggling, and that makes me think of all kinds of other oils that really have kind of gone the the way of like some heirlooms, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, vegetables before. Yeah, um, it became popular to bring them back. <laughs> yeah. but, you know, they're they're you know squash seed oils. I've had some amazing ones, um, but you know, it's just so hard to find anymore because it's you got these like huge industrial oil machines. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that it's just like. It's really hard for for people to to think about, you know, the cost differences and, and what that's worth. And, you know, it, it just falls out of fashion sometimes, honestly. And fashion happens for many different reasons. Not all of them are like, you know, linked to huge conglomerate no. food makers. It's many different reasons. So I think oils is really interesting. Well, you draw the parallel in your piece um, about how olive oil in the 1990s um, really wasn't a commercial thing. And we wrote a story on taste a couple years ago about um, how there was a big junket in the 90s. um, And like all these chefs were invited to Italy and and all all of a sudden olive oil became um, popular. But now we've got sesame oil and it seems that we're at this moment with sesame oil where cold pressed sesame oil should have its olive oil mm-hmm. moment, right? Exactly. Yeah. And also ses- sesame oil doesn't have to be super dark and super flavorful. So right. to your point, uh, <laughs> there were some comments in the story that we're working on right yeah. now. Um, you could have a lightly toasted sesame oil that won't be, you know, you can deep fry with it yeah. and um, it won't be, it won't taste to sesame-y. <laughs> There's so many different vari- variations. Yeah, listener, uh, listen, check out that story. The opening line is <laughs> is amazing. I love the opening line, so watch oh, for that. <laughs> it's a really good one. Um, I want to wrap up and hear about some of your cookbook work because you're working on a cook- cookbook now. And what can you tell us about that book? Well, I'm co-writing a cookbook right now, which is yeah. a new adventure for me. I've never done this before. And I'm working with the chef and owner and co-owner, both co-owners of Winsun and Winsun Bakery. And it's a really amazing Taiwanese-American restaurant and uh, sister bakery. And so I I guess, you know, it's been a really interesting process because of the pandemic (laughs) happening. So it's been like a two-year process now. But it's it's a lot of fun. But it makes me, it almost stresses me out more to work with chefs because (laughs) I have to do them justice and it's yeah. not just my story that I can, 
you know, riff on and, you know, tell. So I, I just, you know, it's a little nerve wracking. Yeah. The collaboration process, I've, I've not really, my, my, my relationship with chefs is different. It's I, much respect to you for well, taking you, on that responsibility. You've done that with Tuki Hung now for uh, <laughs> a one amazing book. And thank you for that. I, well, we, I feel like Dukey and I just like kind of, we, we, we mind melded a bit and yeah. I, and I, it's a to me that 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 collaboration wasn't traditional. We're like partners on it more than traditional collaboration agreements, mm. which is get, kind of getting into the weeds a little bit. When you take on the responsibility of 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 kind of getting into the voice of the chef, mm-hmm. that's hard. Yeah. That's really really hard. I've not done that. Like okay. Dukey and I, I are in a different zone, and I I don't think it's as difficult as what you're doing. So props <laughs> to you. When's Thanks. the book out? A uh, year from now, basically, next oh, yeah. fall, 2022. That's amazing. Oh, my goodness. Uh, let's hope it does come out then. <laughs> it will come out. It will come out. You're on your way. Well, Kathy, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. The Taste Podcast is hosted by Matt Rodbard and me, Anna Heasel. The show is produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumbert. Our theme music is by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.